We at Global Nomad Hacks are peace heroes. By playing Peace and Harmony program during this episode, we help create one million pockets of peace by dissolving stress and tension. To be your own peace hero and get your own copy, go to peaceandharmonydownload.com. Welcome back to Global Nomad Hacks. We're so excited to introduce you today to a transition expat coach and relocation expert who I discovered on another wonderful podcast. Welcome, Louise Wiles, calling us all the way from the UK. Hi. Hi. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me today. So fortunately, amidst all of this craziness, it sounds like you've managed to repatriate and are back in your home country. But that has a lot of implications for people in terms of transitions. How do we get back home? Do we get back home? What does that mean in our lives? And then there's also how do we get back to where we were before? Lots of visa restrictions are changing and a lot of things like that. So we've got so many different topics that we can cover today. Just wanted to, we'll just, you know, blast right into it. But uh, just so that folks know a little bit more about Louise, who are you and how did you get into the working in this space? Okay, well, I guess I got working, I got into working in this space by living in this space. So age 30, my husband was asked to move, well, he'd been asked to move abroad a number of times and we'd declined because of my career. Um, but then he was asked to go and do a, a work project in, in Madrid, in Spain, which then became a permanent. So then I went and joined him in Madrid. And so it started from there then. And we just continued to live in Spain. Then we went to Portugal. We came back to the UK for a few years. Then we went back to Portugal. So we've kind of been doing this loop around some European countries for probably the last 20 years. Yeah, and, and and that's how I got into it. <laughs> yeah, and I mean just the just the implications of the you know the logistics that it takes to move a family from one country to another and fortunately I would imagine it sounds like you were still within the EU and or, or what was I guess within the EU may, maybe not any longer which also has new implications which probably made some things easier was that the the situation when you first moved or were you was the EU already established? Um, yeah, no, it was EU. So, it, yeah, that, yes, that obviously makes it simpler in the sense that we don't have to do run the gauntlet of the visa issue and we're free to move around the Euro, around Europe. But that doesn't mean we don't register in each European country and you know, things are they're supposed to be done in a certain way. They perhaps do have their own rules within their country. So, we have had to register in each country and my husband I remember when we first moved to Portugal, he had to demonstrate that he was earning and employed in Portugal. I'm not sure what they'd have done if they found he wasn't, because I think under EU, they couldn't have got rid of us. But yeah, yeah, it made it easier. Let's put it that way. We were free to move. For me, that's the sad part of us leaving the EU, well, one of the many sad parts of us leaving the EU EU, um, from the, in terms of the UK leaving next, well, we're left now, but officially and formally from next year freedom of movement is, yeah, come to an end. Yeah. And I think COVID-19 has kind of underlined that as well. So it's certainly got the nail in the coffin now. And a lot of people believe it's the right thing. Now, yeah. They didn't before. What are some of the things, some of the, like the big standout issues that you obviously will write about, but also that you see people have the biggest questions or maybe don't even consider, and then they're surprised by when they do a relocation? 
Right. Yeah, I think I think often, particularly because the area I work in is assignments with companies, so companies moving people for work roles. So often they're driven by that or drawn by that role. And they probably have an interest in living abroad and the two kind of come together. And it, it's, it's seen as that very positive opportunity, which is great and fantastic. And for many, many people it is. But I've learned over the years and talking with expats that a lot say, while they wouldn't change having had the experience, they would change how they've done it. And I think often there's this kind of mad rush into it without a lot of thought, particularly where there are partners going to. And so partners often give up careers to go with the employee. And initially that can seem like a very positive opportunity, but they don't think much part past that first sort of that move and, and the first few months. And I think a lot of people would benefit from really having a much deeper conversation with each other about their careers and what they want longer term for their careers. Because I think people can make some very short term decisions which impact dramatically on their longer term career progression as a partner and and can make them quite vulnerable because I know I've, I've I know partners who you know 20 years in to an expat cycle of series of assignments you know have become have separated and had to start life again as an independent single person who haven't had the career experience that have meant has meant them to being able to find you know good jobs that could maintain them at the standard they had become used to and accustomed to so really giving some thought about why you want to make the move and how that's going to impact on family. So, for example, also if you've got children, thinking very carefully about how you're going to manage that, particularly if you have teens, because moving teens, particularly in their, around their exam years, from age 14 upwards, I would say, can be quite traumatic for them. And, of course, each child will react differently. Mm-hmm. So I know families where one child has been fantastic and loved it and the other has had a really negative reaction to it so you know think about your teams and the impact on them and how you're going to facilitate the transition for them and remember it's a transition it's not just a move and an unpack of suitcases it is a it takes time you know it's interesting I think I remember back when I was doing my business degree in Brussels you know 20 some odd years ago but Several of my friends there and colleagues were trailing spouses. So they, they followed their spouse to go work in Brussels and, but they mm-hmm. didn't come with their own career. And so they chose to do business school to enhance their existing skills or whatever it was mm-hmm. while they were doing it because the ability to get visas at that point, the EU was, it wasn't completely open free mobility. So even those that were European citizens or citizens from European countries at the time, struggled finding work and the internet wasn't really, you know, all this online working wasn't really an option (laughs) to the same extent. So it was really quite challenging. And I know that the divorce rate was very high. The other thing that, you know, like you're saying with the the kids, I've seen with my own kids, they've managed it very differently. One completely embraced it and sort of has loved being in the different countries. Whereas my son, he's very much, he's a Swede. He's, you know, a Swede through and through, and he, you know, he does perfectly fine in California. And, you know, his English has always been fine because he has a mother that's American and English speaking. Mm. But for him culturally and in just his whole mannerisms, it's really challenging and it's hard for him to find mm. his people. Yeah. And I wonder, is are there resources that you direct people to when it comes to 
sort of connecting to other people in that that are in that transition, but also just to help them work through some of those challenging times that moving for not just the physical moving of the suitcase, but the uh, moving of the mindset to a place where they can embrace where they are. Yes. Yeah. And I think yeah, that that's where you know some companies provide cultural training, and with that comes some kind of discussion about transition and change, and that's offered to parents, not so much for children. So for children and teens, there are people who offer support as psychologists, but also there are quite a lot of Facebook groups, and there's a lovely organisation called Families in Global Transition, Ficked, yeah, uh, which I'm a member of, and that. You know, we have an affiliate in the UK. I think there's a number of affiliates in the States and it's kind of expanding around the world. And they come together to talk about the challenges that third culture kids experience as kids who are moved outside of their home cultures and loads of resources there to support. And then I think also if if you're moving abroad and your kids are going to international schools, then there's a growing awareness of the challenge of transition for kids. So I mean, and it does vary from school to school, but I've noticed that the professionalism in terms of handling that and support services through counselling has, has grown quite dramatically in recent years, which is really positive. So, yeah, there's a whole range of resources, really. And I think people are becoming more and more aware of the challenges. So um, I'm noticing companies are, you know, whether they advertise the services as available, I'm not sure. But if, if you were to go to your global mobility department, say, this is a challenge we're having, they probably would have access to resources too and be prepared to support them too because they realise how important it is for families to be supported. You brought up an interesting point when you talk about the international schools. It's one thing with the counselling, but one of the things that I've always been sort of surprised by in some ways, and some schools do it better than others, obviously, but a lot of the times in the international school system, because they've got people that are constantly coming through in transition, Mm. there's more leniency towards the quality of their English speaking. And for it's one thing if they're non-native English speakers, but if they are native English speakers, I found my kids, their written English was atrocious coming out of the international schools. And you would think, oh, it would be so great. But they have this assumption that, you know, they have to teach to sort of the middle factor. Now, maybe this was just coming out of Sweden. And we only did that at the very end. So my kids learned their base, you know, their base English after Swedish. So they mm. wrote phonetically Swedish in English, which they really, they didn't really overcome that until we moved to the States and probably okay. two years in. And it works fine if you know both languages, you can understand what the errors are. But if you don't know both yeah. languages, you can't understand where the phonetics are coming from. Yeah, I was just yeah. wondering if you've yeah. experienced that with the international schools, or is that something that, you know, and regardless of whether you're a native English speaker or not, the different levels, whether it's the different levels in the maths or the different levels of expectations as you're transferring around into different different school systems? Yeah, I mean, certainly a difference in curriculum across, you know, American curriculum to, to English to whatever. Yeah, you're going to find differences there, and that's a challenge for everyone. I mean, my kids—they were in an they were in international school in both. We lived in Madeira when they were were children, and that wasn't a British curriculum. It was mixed British and Portuguese, quite a a strange mix. But then they moved to a a school in Lisbon, which was British curriculum. So they, in theory, yeah, they were 
at the level and it, they were taught by British on the whole British teachers so they were but we then moved back to the UK with one of my daughters was nine and exactly that issue one you've described I mean her English was not of the standard at the school that she went to and I, I remember getting called in by the teacher and saying I can't engage Izzy in the English she doesn't want to sit and write she just won't and I don't know what to do about it. And I said, well, it's part of the transition. You need to be a bit gentle and all of this. But then asked her about it. And she said, oh, the, the kids, they all write and write and write. And I can't just write and write and write. Yeah, I think she just wasn't used to have all the kids around her had been brought up and educated in English. Everything was done in English. And so there was a fluidity to everything that they did. Whereas she had done a mixture, plus she was in a classroom where the majority were foreign. So English was their second language. So there wasn't that fluidity, even though the teacher said that they were teaching at the standard. It just wasn't, I mean, it didn't take long for her to get back up to that level, but it will get to that level. But yes, I definitely noticed the difference. And I think perhaps that's part of the price you pay for an international school. But then I see the benefits she had in terms of learning Portuguese and mixing with a whole range of different kids from different nationalities, which was such a rich experience that... Yeah, it was worse. <laughs> oh, ab- absolutely. I'm not saying that, you know, I would say that's one of the very few cons in the experience yeah. for us. Mm-hmm. But I, I was just curious as to whether you had experienced a similar thing. I know you have actually recently launched something that's more COVID oriented. And, you know, initially when we started this podcast, because this is where we're still fairly new, we tried to avoid having too many conversations about COVID because we didn't know how long this thing was going to go on. So it's like, are we going to launch this episode and, you know, we'll all be back to whatever normal was. Well, now it's pretty clear that, you know, normal is gone. We're, there's not, there's no going back to normal. And in some ways, that's very good because there were a lot of things that were completely out of whack. And it really highlighted some of the systems that were broken. It also Mm -hmm. has highlighted some things that work quite well that may be good solutions and different opportunities. But I think what has been really interesting is sort of recognizing how does this impact us as global nomads? I mean, for us, we spend half of our year in France. We're not able to go to our home in France, even though we're Swedish citizens. I mean, we can go there, but the construction's been put on hold for, Mm -hmm. you know, while they're in quarantine. There's no point in going. So, you know, yeah. we're yeah. doing a major renovation that we put it on hold. But so, I mean, these transitions that we normally are very fluid, it's just hop on a plane and go. Visa requirements are changing. Borders are closing. They may be opening, but, you know, there's a lot of things that are, you know, our old norm of travel and also recognizing when we don't need to so mm-hmm. that we really mm-hmm. only do it when we need to. And we look mm-hmm. at also alternate ways of doing things. So I'm curious a little bit about what your thoughts are there and what where you think the key conversations are to have for global nomads around this topic. Yeah. Um, well, I think you know, the initial reaction, so starting right at the beginning you know, with the COVID-19 outbreak and the impact that it's had on impacts on, on expats around the world. So you know, many have stayed in place. So they are living you know, in, in foreign countries dealing with this scenario which in some countries will be fine because you know they're sophisticated you know societies and and managed well but in others I think it must be incredibly difficult 
I think a lot there are expats who have been separated. So perhaps the family's come gone back to their home country, the partner employee has stayed. So they're separated with no end in sight in that sense. And then, you know, for expats who rely on a lot of business travel as well, you know, what is the future for that? That's a personal situation we have because my husband actually works in Portugal still. So he's doing everything by Zoom. But, you know, the question is, will he, will he get back to his desk there if he will? So it's all of those questions. Yes. I don't think anyone has any answers at the moment because, you know, governments haven't even decided how they're going to manage this whole issue of border control and travel. I was just listening to a global mobility discussion. So with global mobility heads of departments for global mobility and organizations and relocation. And, you know, they were saying, well, looking forward, we can see business travel falling off significantly, obviously, because you know people can't do it at the moment, probably won't want to do it, particularly for quite some time. And also, I think we're demonstrating that actually it's not always necessary, that we can do things via you know, Zoom as we are now. So there's a change of in, an approach there that I think will happen. And, and perhaps we, people will really consider whether they do need to, to travel for work. And that then opens the kind of conversation around shorter term assignments, because that was where the global mobility industry was going. You know, shorter term assignments were becoming much more frequent. And the longer terms, well, people were saying they're falling off, they actually weren't. But, you know, shorter term, I think that's under question as well, because if you're managing a project and you're proving at the moment where we can manage the project at a distance, then perhaps you don't need to do those short term assignments anymore. So that then leaves long term assignments, which they were predicting actually will continue and that will, you know, it will evolve. But then the positive side of what they were saying was that this is highlighting the need for connection and the role that organisations need to play ensuring that connection is available for expats, which has often been a criticism. So making sure the support's there, the focus, number one, on health and safety. Perhaps that sometimes been swept under the carpet just because, you know, many countries, you just assume, well, they're fine now. It's a modern country. We don't need to worry. So suddenly having to really think carefully about that, too. So I think those are all issues. And and I wonder what expats are thinking about whether they want to to continue moving. I mean, I've had a number of conversations in the past week with expats who have impending moves coming and they're still going to be moving. It's just that they're sitting currently in limbo land waiting to know when that might happen. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, we have uh, in the little town that we are in, in France, there's fairly large, considering the size of the town, proportionally, uh, there's a fairly large expat community. And it mm. seems like a lot of them have chosen to be there. And it may be also because, you know, they're, some of them is a second home, and they would rather be there than in a city where they're confined. Yeah. Although in France, they've only just been allowed to go out. And I think they're actually extending the quarantine, the shelter in place, mm. at least through May, I think it's to mid June. So who knows, yes. who knows yes. what will happen there. But it is interesting to see who chooses to stay and what does that mm. mean. We also have some friends in, in Barcelona that just got outside for the first time in many, many weeks. Oh, yes. And uh, I know. I, I they were so that. joyful mm. with, you know, going out for a run and the pictures and the smiles on their faces. And mm. I think one thing that, that this has really brought forward is appreciation for that which we have access to and what is available. And really, you know, for us, 
we, we tend to travel so much. We don't spend very much time where we are physically, you know, registered as residents. My husband and I have had more overlapping days in the last the last month and a half than we have in years. Yeah. We're normally sort of like exchange exchange hellos at the airport type thing. So it's been lovely. And I mean, I've got my two young adult kids at home and family dinners, which we haven't had for years, <laughs> things like that. So there's definitely points to that where the question is, you know, do you you know, do you try to nest where you are or do you decide mm-hmm. to to reach out? And that's both on a business side of do we expand what we can do remotely so that we can yeah. choose to be wherever we want to be? Or do mm. we try to do the work that we were doing before in some kind of a hybrid model? And I think mm. that it'll be very interesting to see how companies choose to adopt to that as well as entrepreneurs. I'm curious, do you work much with entrepreneurs? Because that's always a, an interesting issue when you have people that are living abroad that are, you know, they're starting their own businesses. And how do you register a business when you're in, abroad? And a lot of trailing spouses choose mm. that option because they can't get hired because they, you know they yeah yeah so yeah and because they're they're portable yeah and they're moving around they said look to develop portable businesses and yes so I have yeah worked with some but I mean I'm not a business coach so that's not my area although I have my own business experience so I can apply that but yes I mean it's a challenge for partners certainly and I think they often do go for the portable business route for the very reason that they want to be able to take it with them when they next predictably move if they're working with you know the husbands or work partners are working with companies yeah and I'm beginning to see them talking about putting things online and, and you know a lot of my contacts you know people are beavering away I work in the UK with a training networking group and trainers who normally would be delivering face-to-face squirreling away right now creating online and have been asked by organizations and companies to do exactly that and put their content online and I was just thinking about that today and just thinking how much online can we really take though that's the thing that I keep coming back to because I yeah I coach online and that works definitely but to live online all the time and not to have face-to-face meetings and contact, I would find very difficult. So, and I think that's probably true for many, many employees. I mean, I know just talking about people living in the UK being forced to work from home now as they are, you know, they're all talking about, yeah, I still need to get to the office and have that social connection and time with people. And so perhaps it's going to be, as you said, a hybrid. I think because companies are going to have to take people back in small numbers, you know, 25% of the workforce to, to, to honour social distancing, you know, perhaps what's naturally going to evolve is some form of hybrid and, and a greater acceptance that you can be flexible about where you're working. You mm-hmm. don't have to come into the office to prove to us that you are actually being productive. And perhaps an output, you know, focus more on outputs, you know, so yeah. rather than worrying about what people are actually doing, think about what people actually produce, you know, that would be a healthy way for everyone to think about work, probably, I think. Not, yeah, Absolutely. And I think that will also apply for schools and the, the portability of being able to finish your curriculum somewhere else and be able to do it remotely. I mean, there's a lot of conversations now about, you know, or do they start the school year in, June, in July so they can accommodate uh, social distancing within that environment? And 
to do July, you know, to have the kids sitting in a hot school in July seems absolutely crazy. But if they can do it from the comfort of their home or wherever they are, then it certainly makes sense. And, and of course, there are issues with, you know, some people won't be comfortable to go back in July and be in, Mm. you know, an enclosed Mm. space. So I think it's going to take quite a while for us to sort of land at what is comfortable, what works well, and sort of the new rules, the new w- new ways yeah. of doing things. Yeah. But I do think that we're, it's a great opportunity for us to, to really figure out what that hybrid model is. To one of your points mm-hmm. of sort of feeling like it's too much technology, I think I have another podcast that's called Evolving Digital Self, and my background is actually more okay. in the behavioral science around the human relationship with technology. And that's what I do for my work work. This is just a passion project. You know, I am a global nomad myself and with third culture kids. I mean, it's just something that I feel is a growing, going to be a growing community. And and it's a topic that's Mm. really important to have conversations on. But I think one thing that has been fascinating to me is that in the beginning of this pandemic, people were starting to say it was about a week and a half in, there was a lot of people saying, I'm zoomed out. I can't, I can't do another zoom call. And now I'm finding, you know, we're six, seven weeks in and people are still doing Zoom, but they are actually building proper boundaries around it and saying, Mm. I'm not using technology on the weekend. And what's Mm -hmm. interesting to me for that, it's it's the people that normally would be on all the time. So they're entrepreneurs Mm. and they're saying, nope, I need to build boundaries around it. And so as a result, they're not working 24-7 like they used to. Mm. Now they're going to working a regular work week and saying, you know, because everything is all blended together and everyone in their household is also doing everything blended together, (laughs) the workday ends at five. Devices go away unless we're watching a movie together. And it becomes this, it's a more mindful relationship with the technology Mm. of saying like, enough is enough. And I think it took that overabundance of it for those people to recognize that, oh, wait a minute, this can be a problem. I yeah. need to make some changes. And I think we'll see that in a lot of areas. Yeah. And I mean, I think the problem with the Zoom thing, I think for me anyway, initially was using it for work, but then also social because it became, yeah, let's Zoom. So we was, yeah. I was Zooming during Zoom the day cocktail. and then Zooming at night. <laughs> and it just too much, too much. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. It's, it's finding the new balance, isn't it, in everything, I think. And so, you know, thinking about, you know, family time as well and you know it's lovely in some senses and really enjoying having everyone around and it's on the whole working pretty well but I know from my daughters particularly my 17 year old you know it's too much family time (laughs) there are lots of other places she would rather be and and so you know it's how we're going to build that back in and, and have some balance and that really important social connection for teens you know, it's really bringing home to me how important it is for them to and growing independence and all those things that this for a 17 year old this year really was about you know it was really a trend it's a transition year I think for many 17 year olds and and suddenly they're being pulled back into the family unit <laughs> going completely the wrong way <laughs> I have one of those as well so I'm yes yeah. I'm, I'm just nodding my head yes I have a 17 year old daughter and a son who's almost 19 who had basically moved out and was traveling around the world. And then now he's home again. He's like, wait a minute, this isn't what I planned for my gap year. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So that's true for so many students. I'm actually going to a friend whose son was planning a year older and is planning a year off 
from September traveling well that's probably not going to happen so you know people are kids of their age are coping with you know changes to exams and or not having exams question marks over universities whether they start in September October or not mm-hmm. and then also yeah whether they do the plans they had for gap years and so on so yeah and I think that's one of the challenges for expats as well with you know teens of, of that age because teens who perhaps were at universities in cult countries that were different from the pair where the parents are living and then they have to make a choice well do I stay in the country where I'm not being now educated or do I go back to my where my parents are which is somewhere perhaps where they've never lived before so they have no social connections or contacts there and um, so that's that's been really challenging I think for many expat families. I can imagine that one that would be very tricky and even I mean we moved in to a much smaller place when our son moved out because we thought oh, we don't don't you know he'll be here we have a room for him when he's visiting but it wasn't it's not a very big room so mm-hmm. as a result because he's working from here now he's sort of you know taken over a portion of the living room to be able to have his workspace so you know you have right. to accommodate we are fortunate enough to have enough space to do that and a lot of people don't but i think mm-hmm. you know to your point if you're on an expat assignment and your you know your kids are away at school or you know, whatever. And then they come back to you, but it's not just for a visit, it's for a longer stay. Often you're in a much smaller place. Yeah. You know, you're, you've moved to, depending on where you are, but I mean, if you're in London, for example, most likely you've got, you know, just enough space for what you need. You know, if yeah. you're fortunate yeah. enough to be in a country where, you know, where you have lots of space, that's great, but that's yeah. not necessarily the case in a lot of places. No, uh, absolutely, yeah. So quite tricky. Mm. So fascinating. So your podcast, Thriving Abroad, and then is the new the new uh, series, is that within Thriving Abroad? And it's all tied yes. into you have a book as well? Yes, yes, yes. So it's all called Thriving Abroad. So that's easy. But yeah, right. so the book came first and then the podcast. Well, the podcast was kind of a way I interviewed people. We interviewed people for the book and, and we just put those interviews on the podcast. So it seemed... And then the book happened and the podcast continued. But once all of this started, I decided to do a series called the Thriving Abroad Together series. And it's a, a series of interviews with people who support expats in various ways. So counsellors, coaches, business advisors, career coaches. So there are a whole range of interviews around, you know, topics that perhaps expats are struggling with, so anxiety, job loss, job search, all of those kind of things. So the aim was to cover a range of topics. I've got one coming up on fitness and health and nutrition, because, you know, that's something that I guess everyone's struggled or not struggled with, depending on where you are in the world and what restrictions you're under. But yeah, so a range of subjects on well-being, I guess, overall, is how I would summarize it. Well, and and it's such a critical topic right now. And I think that, you know, all of those things, and they're not necessarily only for people who are abroad. I think, you know, there's there's so many different yeah. factors. And I, you know, when I started this podcast, you know, people who haven't, you know, worked abroad are often like, well, you know, is there that many people are doing it? And I'm like, well, think about the people that you know, how many of them are not from here? And then that, and that's just part of it. I mean, most of them think, oh, well, how many people, they're thinking, oh, how many Americans have gone abroad? Well, when I was living abroad, when I first moved abroad, I remember now it's changed. But as an American abroad, 
Uh, we didn't have any representation in the government. So when it came to elections, our votes weren't even counted. We had no delegates. Right. So even when they did start counting them, they we didn't go to a delegate anyway. So it went to the popular mm-hmm. vote, but didn't. So it was sort of like, why do we even have elections abroad? It's a total waste. And I found that extremely frustrating. And it was even at that time, and this was probably 25, you know, 30 years ago, and they were saying, oh, well, there's, a, there's over 9 million, this is back then, over 9 million Americans that live abroad. I have no idea what the number is now. But I mean, now I'm, you know, both a Swedish and an American citizen. So I'm having to balance those, you know, make sure that I make sh- the elections for each of them and, and vote for my part, because it obviously everything impacts us on both sides. But I think what's interesting is that the numbers are not really reflective, you know, of how many people are actually expats and living abroad. Because we often mm-hmm. only count those from our country, you know, that are living away, rather than mm-hmm. those that are also coming in okay. from somewhere else. Yeah. And some of them naturalize, and then they all of a sudden don't become part of the statistic anymore. I think what we're, what we're going to see is more of a recognition of just how big that number is. Just mm-hmm. like I always joke with my husband, because he's like, well, you know, there's more Chinese speakers than anything else in the world. And I was like, no. The biggest language in the world is bad English, because most people understand a fair amount of English, but would never say that they speak English. But because of the internet, they know how to navigate bad English. They can have a really simple sort of pigeon conversation, but they don't register as an English speaker. Yeah. And so there's, you know, what we count on these statistics is totally off. And I think it's important to recognize that growing population because they need to be served. There are those challenges. Mm-hmm. There's the emotional challenges. There's the logistical challenges. And how do we support that group? So I'm excited to see the work that you're doing and to help other people find you. And it sounds like they just look for Thriving Abroad pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Well, Thriving Abroad, is, it's the website for the podcast. And there's a bit about the book there as well. So yes, and me. So yes, go to Thriving Abroad. Quite easy. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Is there anything else you would like to add before we sign off? No, I don't think so, other than to say, you know, send my best wishes to all the expats out there who, yeah, going through challenging times at the moment. Yeah, and I suppose, and to say, you know, we're living with uncertainty. And as an expat, you have another level of uncertainty, I think, as well, because you're not in your, necessarily your home. You may feel at home, but, you know, it's not your forever home. So there is uncertainty around what comes in the future. And and to be kind to yourself, because you know, I think we've all been talking about that nationally in the UK as well. You know, we don't, that sense of not having any control really about where things are going can be very unsettling. But as an expat, you know that. So that's the other thing. You know, as an expat, you've moved, you've adjusted, and you know how to do that. So call on those strengths because you have them, you've done it. You can cope with change and transition. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think such great points. And I think, you know, to go along with that, just remember to breathe. Because, yeah. you know, we'll get through this, we're all going to be okay. And, you know, it, it, we're not done yet. There's going to be a lot of other changes going through. But I think to your point that as expats, you've been through a lot of this already, that uncertainty, there's a lot of things when you're tra- in transition, you don't know what the end outcome is, you know where you want to go. But sometimes, and I, I love this expression. I interviewed someone recently, and 
where I was talking about pivots, and she said, oh, I don't like that word. I think swivel is a better word. And I think that's such a good way to describe it, because it's really more, you don't just like change 45 degrees. You're, You're, you know, you really have to sort of swivel through this, and we'll be okay. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, So absolutely. So anyway, Thank you so much for joining us today. This has really been a pleasure to uh, get to know you a little bit more, Louise, and share you with the global nomads out there, expats and third culture kids and third culture families. I think there's a, a lot of wealth of knowledge in what she has to share. So please reach out to her through Thriving Abroad and learn more about her work. Yeah, it's been a pleasure having you on today. Thank you for joining us. Global Nomads, it's been a pleasure sharing some time with you, and we appreciate your listening. If you enjoyed today's show and you haven't subscribed yet, please do. And we, if you send us a rating and review, please send me a note, because I always like to send a little swag to my friends that take the time to write a review. Thank you so much, and it's been a pleasure. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye for now. <laughs>